Section 12 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 11, Part 5. On the 16th of September, 1713, being the 12th anniversary of King James's death, her anguish was renewed by the commemorative offices at which she had assisted in the tribune, where the hearts of the husband and daughter she had loved so fondly were enshrined. Yet she said, that in the midst of her grief she had consolation in the thought that they were both happy in the enjoyment of everlasting peace. She added, that she had often reflected with astonishment on the graciousness of God in preserving to her her son when he bereaved her of the princess, and that she was satisfied that he who is infinitely wise and good had done all in mercy. From these expressions and the general tone of her letters, it is certain that although in compliance with the customs, perhaps in obedience to the authority of the church of which she was a member, Mary Beatrice continued to the end of her life to pray for the repose of the souls of her husband and daughter. She believed that they had already entered into the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. The next day, Saturday, the 17th of September, Mary Beatrice received a packet of letters from her absent son, just after she had entered the chapel to attend Complins. But anxious as she was to hear from him, she would not open the envelope till the service was over. She read her letters while she was taking her tea. The same evening, the Princess of Condé, who drank tea with her, showed her a print of the late princess, her daughter, which the painter Lapel had caused to be engraved. The queen looked at it, and repressing the tears with which the sight of those dearly loved features, now veiled forever in the darkness of death, called to her eyes, pursued her discourse on indifferent subjects. Eloquent as she generally was, when the name of that last and fairest of her buried hopes was mentioned, she could not speak of her then. Her heart was too full. She said that she had a copy of Regal's portrait of Louis the Fourteenth made to send to her son. That portrait, she observed, had always struck her as a great resemblance of his majesty only it was full thirty years younger than he was, even when she came into France, and he was very much changed and bent since then. She added, He perceives it himself, and says sometimes, Formerly I was taller than some of the people about me, who are now taller than me. On the 26th of September, an ecclesiastic came from Saint-Germain to consult with the queen, on the means to be taken for the relief of the destitute there, telling her that to his certain knowledge, several persons had passed thirty hours without food. Mary Beatrice was greatly afflicted and said, she was embarrassed to the last degree herself, not daring to importune the King of France, though her pension was several months in arrear, and her son was also without money. She was tantalized with promises from some of Queen Anne's ministers that her dowry should be paid. Secret engagements had been undoubtedly made between the sovereign and Louis the Fourteenth before the Peace of Utrecht, guaranteeing that provision for the widow of James the Second, and the Abbe Gautier had been sent to England to receive the first installment from Harley, the Lord Treasurer, but was put off from day to day. De Marais, the French Minister of Finance, 
made the promises of the British minister, touching the payment of the dowry, an excuse for delaying the disbursement of her pension from his royal master. The distress of her followers roused the unfortunate queen once more, from the quiescent state of endurance in which she was willing to remain, as regarded her own pecuniary difficulties. She wrote a heart-rending appeal to Madame de Maintenon. She received a letter in reply on Sunday, October 1st, while she was at dinner, in which that lady expressed great sympathy, saying, that her majesty's letter had filled her heart with pity, that she could not think of her situation without pain, and though she did everything in her power to avoid causing any to the king, she could not refrain from representing her distress to his majesty, and that he would speak himself to Monsieur de Marais on the subject. She said also, that he had sent to Monsieur de Torcy, requesting him to write to the Abbe Gautier, not added the cautious diplomatiste, that I dare to solicit for your majesty anything that would be inconvenient to him, but merely to testify my zeal for your interests. This communication served to raise the spirits of the desolate widow, and the good effects of the intervention of the powerful advocate she had succeeded in interesting in her favor, appeared in the receipt of the payment of 50,000 livres of the arrears due to her on her pension. Small as that sum really was, reduced into English pounds, it was as the cup of cold water to the fainting caravan in the desert, and enabled the exiled queen to accord to many of the famishing emigrants at Saint-Germain, the means of dragging on the fever of life for a few months longer. Common honesty also demanded that she should make a small installment to the convent of Chalot, on account of the large sum in which she stood indebted to them, not only for a home, but very often for food, both for herself, her ladies, and their maids. Her Majesty, says the recording sister of Chalot, gave our mother very privately three thousand livres, all in gold, but entreated her not to let any one know that she had paid her anything. No sooner, indeed, was it suspected, much less known, that the widowed consort of James II had received any portion of her income, than she was beset with clamorous demands from all her creditors and clients, the Irish in particular. Some readers will, doubtless, feel disposed to censure Mary Beatrice for expending money she could ill afford in the following manner. The fete day of the abbess, occurring while she was at Chalot, she could not avoid complying with the custom, which prescribed that every person in the convent should make some present, great or small, to that lady for the decoration of her church. Mary Beatrice was not only under great obligations to the house, but considered it necessary to give according to her rank, rather than her means. As the widow of a king of England, and bearing the title of queen, she determined not to be outdone by any French lady on this occasion. Having privately got the assistant sister, Marie Helene, to measure the width of the choir, she sent her careful privy purse, Lady Strickland, to Paris, to purchase the materials for a curtain, called by our nun, an apparament, to hang up before it, instead of a piece of tapestry. Lady Strickland performed her commission, it seems, to admiration, for she made a choice of a beautiful piece of red brocade, flowered with gold and silver, and edged with a splendid gold fringe with a rich heading. Sister Marie Helene, who possessed the pen of a ready writer, 
composed by the queen's desire some verses suitable to the occasion to accompany the present meantime the matter was kept as secret as anything could be in which three ladies were concerned till the important day arrived after the abbess had received all the other little offerings they were placed in the chamber of assembly and the queen was invited to come and look at them her majesty had something obliging to say of everything and when she had inspected all she bade sister marie helene bring her gift and present it to the abbess with the verses in her name it was quite a surprise and the whole community were eloquent in their admiration of the elegance and magnificence of the offering but the queen imposed silence not loving to hear her own praise the community wished to have the arms and initials of the royal donor emblazoned on the paramount but mary beatrice would not permit it saying that it would appear like vanity and ostentation and that she should consider it highly presumptuous to allow anything to her own glorification to be placed in a church cardinal galterio who had seen the chevalier de st george at the court of lorraine after his return from plombieres came to bring letters from him to his widowed mother and rejoiced her heart with good accounts of his health and recommendations of his conduct mary beatrice told the nuns that she had laughed and cried alternately at the sight of the cardinal who was her countryman because she had thought to see his face no more the coquere as our shallow chronicle designates the enthusiastic broad-brimmed jacobite before mentioned paid the queen a second visit about this time mary beatrice received him in the presence of her friend cardinal galtiero and behaved so graciously to him that he left her highly delighted with the interview the conference between so remarkable a trio as our italian queen a cardinal and a quaker must have been an amusing one martin the haitian envoy at paris notices the quaker's visit to the chevalier de st george in a letter to robethon the hanoverian minister in which he mentions the return to paris of one of his friends who had spent two months with the exiled prince at bar where he got much into his confidence and spoke very favorably of him the chevalier himself told martin's friend that a quaker who was much spoken of in england at that time came to bar on purpose to see him and when he entered the room addressed him in these words good day james the spirit desired me to come to thee to tell thee that thou shalt reign over us and we all wish it i come to tell thee that if thou hast need of money we will pay thee amongst us from three to four millions the prince wanted to make him some present but he would not take anything the prince made him eat at his own table mary beatrice would gladly have ended her days in the retirement of chalot but for the sake of her beloved son's interest she was induced to return to saint germain towards the end of november to the great joy of her ladies the duchess of perth the countess of middleton lady sophia buckley and madame molza who though they were zealous roman catholics appear to have considered six months conformity to conventual rules rather too much of a good thing before the widowed queen quitted chalot one of the nuns congratulated her on the beneficial effects the waters of plombieres had produced on the weekly constitution of the chevalier de st george adding that she should pray for the improvement of his health and the preservation of his life as the most important things to be desired for him how can you say so cried the queen 
Is there no other good thing to be desired for my son? Madam, replied the nun, we know that on these depend his fortunes. Ah, my sister, said the royal mother, think not too much of his temporal good, but rather let us ask sanctification and constancy in his religion for my son, and the accomplishment of God's holy will, whatever it may be. With this strong feeling on her mind, Mary Beatrice ought not to have coveted the throne of a Protestant realm for her son. Such, however, are the inconstancies of maternal ambition. General reports were at that time prevalent that the Chevalier de St. George was about to comply with the earnest solicitations of his friends of the Church of England by abjuring that of Rome. The resignation of the Earl of Middleton, the only Roman Catholic in his train at Bar, appeared a preliminary to that step. Few could believe that he would hesitate to imitate the example of his great-grandfather, Henry of Navarre, when, under similar temptations, he had sacrificed his Protestantism for a crown. The unfortunate family of Stuart were, with one exception only, singularly deficient in the wisdom of this world. The Merry Monarch was the only man of his line who possessed sufficient laxity of principle to adapt himself to the temper of the times in which he lived. The son of James II had not only been imbued by his parents with strong prejudices in favor of the faith in which he had been educated, but a feeling of spiritual romance induced him to cleave to it as a point of honor, the more vehemently, whenever he was assailed with representations of how much his profession was opposed to his worldly interests. Among the Shiloh records, a paper is preserved in the well-known hand of the widow of James II, enclosed in a letter to the abbess of Shiloh, headed, Abstract of a letter from the king, my son, written by him to me in English, the 30th of December, 1713. I doubt not that the reports, positive and circumstantial as they are, which are in circulation of my having changed my religion, have reached you, but you know me too well to be alarmed, and I can assure you that with the grace of God, you will sooner see me dead than out of the church. Under this, the royal mother has, with characteristic enthusiasm, written, For my part, my dear mother, I pray God that it may be so, and rest in firm reliance that God, in his mercy, will never abandon that dear son whom he has given me, and of whom his divine providence has, up to the present time, taken such peculiar care. At Saint-Germain, January 26, 1714. Maria R. In the letter wherein the preceding abstract is enclosed, the Queen says, I have been delighted to see these lines written by my hand, and am well persuaded that they are imprinted on his heart. I have written to this dear son, that I threw myself on my knees after I had read them, and thank God with all my heart, that through his mercy both were inspired with the same sentiments, he in wishing rather to die, and I in desiring rather to see him dead than out of the church." The name of Bigot will, doubtless, be applied to Mary Beatrice by many readers of the above passage, and perhaps with justice, for confining exclusively to one peculiar section, a term which includes the righteous of every varying denomination of a great Christian family. The accidents of birth and education had made this princess a member of the Latin Church, but if she had been born and brought up as a daughter of the Church of England, or any other Protestant community, there can be little doubt, 
but she would have been equally zealous and sincere in her profession, and no less ready to sacrifice temporal advantages for conscience' sake. The enthusiastic attachment of Mary Beatrice to her own religion prompted her to give as much publicity to her son's assurances on the subject of his determination to adhere to the Romish communion, as if it had been her great object to exclude him from the throne of England. Among Bothmar, the Hanoverian minister's papers, there is an intercepted letter headed thus in Robathon's hand. Paris, 31st of January, 1714, from the secretary of the pretender's mother to Lord Aylesbury, which ends with these words. Our friend at Bar-le-Duc remains firm in his persuasions as yet, though many efforts have been made to bring him over. It was a great comfort to his mother to find his firmness in that point by a letter under his own hand. We shall see what the darling hopes of a crown will do when proper steps are made towards it. The death of Queen Anne was almost hourly expected at that time. All Europe stood at gaze, awaiting with eager curiosity the proceedings of the rival claimants of the crown of Great Britain. That the prospects of the expatriated son of James II and Mary Beatrice were regarded at that crisis as flattering may be inferred from the encouragement given by the Emperor of Germany to the secret overtures for a matrimonial alliance between that prince and the Archduchess, his sister. The favorable dispositions of the dying sovereign of Great Britain toward her disinherited brother were generally asserted, and it may perhaps be considered as symptomatic of the state of her mind at the approach of death that she was willing to accord the long-withheld provision of her royal father's widow. Early in the year 1714, Mary Beatrice received the first, last, and only installment from the British government, ever paid to her of the jointure settled upon her by the Parliament of England. Queen Anne, on the 23rd of December, 1713, signed the warrant authorizing the payment of £11,750 out of the £500,000 lately granted by Parliament for the liquidation of her own private debts. £50,000 per annum was the sum originally claimed by the exiled queen, but her necessities, and above all, her desire of entering into amicable relations with Queen Anne, for the sake of her son, induced her gladly to accept a first quarter's payment on the Lord Treasurer Harley's computation of the dower at £47,000. The acquittance she gave was simply signed, Marie Rain. This transaction was subsequently made one of the heads of Harley, Earl of Oxford's impeachment in the House of Lords, when, among other political offenses, he was accused. Of having by means of Matthew Pryor, the poet, held secret correspondence with Mary, consort to the late King James, and that he had also had frequent conferences with the Abbot Galtier, a popish priest, her emissary, to concert settling the yearly pension of the said £47,000 upon her, for life, under pretense of those letters patent, that he had advised Her Majesty, Queen Anne, to sign a warrant to himself, reciting the said grant of the late King James for payment thereof. To this accusation, the Earl of Oxford pleaded that the consort of James II was legally entitled to receive the jointure, which had been secured to her by an act of Parliament and guaranteed by the private articles of the Treaty of Ryswick, 
and the legality of her claims not being doubted by her majesty queen anne's counsel at law he had considered it his duty to pay proper attention to it and being a debt he had thought himself authorized to pay it out of the fund of five hundred thousand pounds which had been provided for the liquidation of her majesty's debts the arrears of the dower for all the years that this unfortunate queen had been deprived of her provision amounted to upwards of a million of sterling english money her urgent necessities rendered her glad to compound that claim for the sake of touching the above eleven thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds in ready money that sum enabled her to relieve the distresses of her unfortunate followers who had been for many months perishing before her eyes of want the earl or as he was entitled in that court the duke of melfort having returned to saint germain died there in the beginning of the year seventeen fourteen leaving his wife and family almost in a state of destitution he was a man whose violent temper defective judgment and headlong zeal for the interests of the church of rome contributed to the ruin of his royal master and mistress but the assertion that the exiled family regarded him in any other light than that of a faithful servant is disproved by the affectionate manner in which the chevalier de st george recommended his family to the care and protection of queen mary beatrice the following inedited letter of condolence addressed by that prince to lady melfort which through the courtesy of the present duke de melfort is here for the first time placed before the historical reader must set that dispute at rest for ever bar february third seventeen fourteen the true sense i have of the late duke de melfort's long and faithful services makes me sincerely share with you in the loss both you and i have made of him it is a sensible mortification to me not to be able to be of that comfort and support to you and your son and whole afflicted family which you so justly deserve from me all i could do was to recommend you all to the queen's goodness and bounty which i did before the duke of melfort's death whose merit is too great ever to be forgotten by me who desire nothing more than to have it in my power of showing you and your family how truly sensible i am of it and the particular esteem and kindness i have for yourself james r for the duchess of melfort in consequence of her son's recommendation her majesty appointed the duchess de melfort as lady of the bedchamber and one of her daughters maid of honor the same young lady probably who while in the service of the late princess louisa was celebrated by count hamilton by the name of mademoiselle de melfort among the beauties of saint germain a melancholy change had come over these royal bowers since then after the death of the princess and the enforced absence of her brother the sportive lyre of their merry old poet chevalier hamilton was never strung again his gay spirit was quenched at last with sorrow age and penury towards the spring of seventeen fourteen mary beatrice was attacked with so severe an illness that she was given up by her physicians she received the intimation with perfect calmness life had now nothing to attach her except a longing desire to see her son louis the fourteenth and madame de maintenon came to take leave of her and testify much concern they paid her great attention during the whole of her illness from first to last after she had received the last sacraments of her church contrary to all human expectation 
she revived and finally recovered. Her great patience, tranquility, and docility in sickness were supposed to be the reasons that her feeble frame had survived through illness that would have proved fatal to younger and more vigorous persons. So it is true that the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. The queen's beloved friend, Angelique Priolo, was so dangerously ill at the same time that her life was despaired of also, and she too recovered. The first letter written by Mary Beatrice during her convalescence, dated May 22nd, was to congratulate that lady on her amendment, and to express her regret that in consequence of bad weather, she was unable to come and see her, and recruit both mind and body by spending a few days at Chalot. It is very proper, she says, that I should come to testify in person the joy I feel in the new life that God has given you, and that I should give you some signs of that, which he has also restored to me, for no one could be nearer death than I have been without dying. I believe, however, that you have not been in less danger than I was, only you did not see it so plainly, for my head was perfectly clear and self-possessed, even when it was supposed that I had less than an hour to live. But I was not worthy to appear before God, and it is meet that I should suffer, still more in this life, to do penance for my sins, and I shall be too happy, if God, in his mercy, will spare me in the other. Her Majesty goes on to express, her intention of coming to Chalot, as soon as the weather should change for the better, provided her health continues to amend, seeing she gains strength very slowly. She sends affectionate messages to the sisterhood in general, and to some of the invalids by name, requesting the prayers of the community for herself and her son, who is at present, she says, at the waters of Plombieres. This very interesting letter concludes with these words. Adieu, my dear mother, till I can give you, in person, the particulars of the state of mind and body in which I am at present, and of my feelings when I believed myself dying, at which time both my heart and soul were far more tranquil than when I am well. It was one of the effects of God's mercy on me. The utter prostration of physical powers in which the royal widow remained for many weeks after this severe and dangerous illness is probably the reason that her name is so little mentioned in connection with the political history of a crisis, in which, as the mother of the Chevalier de St. George, she was only too painfully interested. The stormy conflicts, on the subject of the succession, that rudely shook the ebbing sands of her august stepdaughter, Queen Anne, will be related in the biography of that queen. During the last weeks of Queen Anne's illness, Mary Beatrice transmitted the intelligence she obtained on that subject regularly to her son. Her proceedings were, of course, closely watched. Prior, in his dispatch to Lord Bolingbroke of August 17th, he expresses himself uncertain whether his royal mistress were alive or dead. The widow of James II had received earlier tidings of the event, for we find by the same letter that she had sent off an express to her son in Lorraine. This express was dispatched by Mary Beatrice on the 12th of August, the day the news of Queen Anne's death reached her. The moment the Chevalier de St. George learned the demise of his royal sister, he took post and traveled incognito with utmost speed from Bar to Paris to consult the queen, his mother, and his other friends. 
having resolved, says the Duke of Berwick, to cross over to England to assert his rights. As he was prohibited from entering France, Mary Beatrice came to meet him at Chalot, where the Duke de Lazune had hired a small house, in his own name, for the reception of the royal adventurer, whose person was too well known at Saint-Germain, for him to venture to brave the authority of his most Christian majesty by appearing there. Surrounded as both the mother and son were with spies, the secret of his arrival in the purlieus of Paris was quickly carried to the court of France. Louis the Fourteenth had paid too dearly for his romantic sympathy for the widow and son of James the Second on a former occasion to commit himself a second time, by infringing the peace of Utrecht, as he had done that of Ryswick, to dry the tears of an afflicted queen. France was not in a state to maintain a war. Her monarch was turned of seventy-six, the age of chivalry was over. Instead of trusting himself to listen to the impassioned pleadings of the Constance and Arthur of modern history, he wisely sent his cool-headed minister, de Torcy, to persuade the luckless claimant of the British crown to return whence he came, and if he could not prevail, to tell him that he had orders to compel him to leave France without delay. As no invitation arrived from England, but on the contrary, George I had been peacefully proclaimed, it was judged unadvisable for the chevalier to attempt to proceed thither, destitute as he was of money, ships, or men, and uncertain where to land. To have had the slightest chance of success, he ought to have been on the spot before the death of Queen Anne, ready to carry the field by a prompt appeal to the suffrages of the people. Now there was nothing to be done but to await quietly the effect that might be produced by the manners and appearance of the new sovereign who had been called to the throne of the Plantagenets. Mary Beatrice and her son perceived too late how completely they had been fooled by the diplomacy of Harley. It must be confessed that neither the Queen nor the Earl of Middleton had put any confidence in the professions of that statesman till by the disbursement of a quarter's payment of the long-contested dower. He gave a tangible voucher of his good intentions toward the Stuart cause. It was, in sooth, 11,750 pounds cleverly employed in throwing dust in the eyes of those whose confidence he, by that politic sacrifice, succeeded in winning. The parting between Mary Beatrice and her son was, of course, a sorrowful one. The prince returned to Bar, and from Bar proceeded to Plombieres, where he issued a manifesto, asserting his right to the crown of England, and proclaiming the good intentions of the late princess his sister in his favor. This declaration turned, in some measure, the table on the treacherous members of Queen Anne's cabinet, who had played fast and loose with the court of Saint-Germain, and was followed by the disgrace of Harley, Ormond, and Bolingbroke. The young queen of Spain, who was a princess of Savoy, sister to the late Dauphiness Adelaide, and granddaughter of Henrietta of England, kept up an affectionate correspondence with Mary Beatrice, whom she always addressed as her dear aunt. Mary Beatrice received a very pleasing letter from this friendly princess, during her abode at Chalot, telling her how much pain she had felt at the reports of her illness, and thanking her for her goodness in having had prayers for her and her consort put up in the convent of Chalot. Her majesty entreated that those might be continued till after her delivery, as she was now in her eighth month, 
and should be compelled to remain in bed for the rest of the time. On the birth of the expected infant, which proved a son, the king of Spain wrote with his own hand to announce that event to Mary Beatrice, and as she was still treated by that monarch and his ceremonious court with the same punctilious respect as if she had been the queen mother of a reigning sovereign, the royal letter was delivered to her in all due form by the secretary to the Spanish embassy, who came in state to Chalot and requested an audience of her majesty for that purpose. Mary Beatrice received also a letter from the princess de Ursins, giving a favorable account of the progress of the queen and telling her that the new infant was to be named Ferdinand, a name revered in Spain. Mary Beatrice wrote in reply to the king of Spain, congratulating him on this happy event. In her reply to the princess de Ursins, after expressing her joy at the safety of the queen of Spain, she says, I pray you to embrace for me the dear little prince of the Asturias, to whom I wish all the blessings spiritual and temporal that God in his grace may be pleased to bestow, and I beg you to tell him as soon as he can understand what it means that he has an old great-great-aunt who loves him very much. Meantime, in consequence of the death of the Duke de Berry, the last surviving grandson of France in the preceding May, the court of Versailles was scarcely less agitated with cobbles and intrigues regarding the choice of the future regent for the infant Dauphin than that of England had recently been on the question of the regal succession. The exiled Queen of England has been accused of aiding, with her personal influence, the attempt of Madame de Maintenon to obtain that high and important post for her pupil, the Duc de Maine, Louis the Fourteenth's son by Montpesson, in preference to the Duc d'Orlan, to whom it of right belonged, and for this end she constantly importuned his majesty to make a will conferring the regency on the Duc de Maine. The veteran intrigant, to whom the weight of fourscore years had not taught the wisdom of repose from the turmoils of state, fancied that if her pupil obtained the regency, she should still continue to be the ruling power in France. Louis the Fourteenth was reluctant to make a will at all, and still more so, to degrade himself in the opinion of the world by making testamentary dispositions, such as he knew would be very properly set aside by the great peers of France. Madame de Maintenon carried her point, nevertheless, by the dint of her persevering importunity. The part ascribed to Mary Beatrice is not so well authenticated, on the contrary, it appears that it was to her that the vexed monarch vented the bitterness of his soul on this occasion, when he came to Chalot to meet her on the 28th of August, 1714. The moment he saw her, he said, Madame, I have made my will. They tormented me to do it. Continued he, turning his eyes significantly on Madame de Maintenon as he spoke and I have had neither peace nor repose till it was done. Mary Beatrice attempted to soothe his irritation by commending him for his prudential care in settling the government for his infant heir before his death. The answer of the aged king was striking. I have purchased some repose for myself by what I have done, but I know the perfect uselessness of it. Kings, while they live, can do more than other men, but after our deaths, our wills are less regarded than those of the humblest of our subjects. 
we have seen this by the little regard that was paid to the testamentary dispositions of the late king my father and many other monarchs well madam it is done come what may of it but at least they will not tease me about it any more the queen beatrix eleonora wife of james the second king of england says elizabeth charlotte the mother of the regent orlan lived too well with the maintenon for it to be credible that our late king was in love with her i have seen a book entitled the old bastard protector of the young in which was recounted a piece of scandal of that queen and the late pere de la chaise this confessor was an aged man turned of four score who bore no slight resemblance to an ass having long ears a large mouth a great head and a long face it was ill-imagined that libel was even less credible than what they have said about our late king it is rarely indeed that our caustic german princess rejects a gossip's tale and her departure from her wonted custom of believing the worst of every one is the more remarkable in this instance inasmuch as the widowed consort of james the second was the intimate friend and in some things unadvisedly the ally of la vielle maintenon the duchess of orleans complains that the letter had prejudiced the queen against her so that she had on some occasions treated her with less attention than was her due for instance she says when the queen of england came to marley and either walked with the king or accompanied him in his coach on their return the queen the dauphiness the princess of england and all other princesses would be gathered round the king but me for whom alone they did not send this implies a negative rather than a positive slight for the exiled queen certainly had no power of sending for any lady in that court she ought perhaps on observing the absence of madame to have inquired for her especially as she was a family connection of her late lord king james being the granddaughter of his aunt the queen of bohemia and the widow of his brother-in-law and cousin the late duke of orleans our grumbling duchess is however candid enough to attribute the friendship with which mary beatrice honoured maintenon to the idea that ingenuous princess had formed of her sanctity she feigns so much humility and piety when with the queen of england continues the duchess of orleans still speaking of maintenon that her majesty regards her as a saint it was considered a conclusive evidence of the matrimonial tie between louis the fourteenth and madame de maintenon when it was seen that she occupied a fauteuil in the presence of the consort of james the second who never abated one iota of the state pertaining to a queen of england in matters on which that ceremonious court placed an absurd importance as soon as it was known that the king had been to visit queen mary beatrice at chalot all the court considered it necessary to follow the royal example and as she made a point of offending no one by refusing to grant receptions she found herself so much fatigued as to be glad to return to saint germain the following affectionate billet appears to have been written by her to the abbess of chalot after her return it is now eight days since i quitted you my dear mother in the crowd and embarrassed of visits which fatigued me much and were troublesome not only in themselves but from having deprived me of the pleasure of conversing with you it seems to me however that i left you in a state of repose i wish to-day to learn if that continues 
and if the little depression in which you found yourself had any other effects. I hope that it is removed, and that your heart is in that peace which I desire for it as for my own. And I pray to God that he will grant it to us, as it is only him who has power to give us what we wish. I shall go tomorrow to Sanser, and on Wednesday week to Fontainebleau, if it please God. You shall have tidings of me once before then. Send me yours, which cannot be indifferent to me assuredly, since I love you with all my heart. This letter has no other date than Saturday, but certainly belongs to the period of her last utter loneliness, as there is no mention of husband or children, and the solitary pronoun I, which she uses with reference to her visits to Sanseur and Fontainebleau, tells a melancholy case in which the royal widow stood, after death had bereaved her of her sweet companion and comforter, the Princess Louisa, and cruel circumstances had deprived her of the society of her son. The following spring, strange manifestations of popular feeling in favor of the disinherited representative of the old royal line broke forth in various parts of England. The cries of, No foreign government, no Hanover, down with the roundheads, St. George for England, were reiterated in Oxford, London, Bristol, and Leicester, and other large towns. The oak leaves were, in spite of all prohibition, triumphantly displayed once more, on the National Festival of the 29th of May, with the words, A new restoration, superadded in many places. In London, on the 10th of June, white roses were worn, in honor of the birthday of the Chevalier de St. George, and at night, the mob compelled the householders to illuminate, and broke the windows of those who did not, and finished their Saturnalia by burning the effigy of William III and Smithfield. It was the 27th anniversary of the birth of the son of Mary Beatrice, and the only one which had been celebrated with anything like popular rejoicings. At Edinburgh, his health was publicly drunk at the town cross by the style and title of King James VIII with acclamations. The object of this wild enthusiasm was, like Robert the Unready, too tardy to take advantage of the movement, which might have borne him triumphantly to a throne, if he had been at hand to encourage his friends. He waited for foreign aid. If Henry the Fourth, Edward the Fourth, and Henry the Seventh had done so, neither would have died kings of England. The timidity of Mary Beatrice, arising from the excess of her maternal weakness for her son, continued to paralyze the spirit of enterprise that was requisite for the leader of such a cause. She declared, as Lord Stair affirms, that without a fleet and a proper supply of arms and troops, her son ought not to imperil the lives and fortunes of his devoted friends by attempting a descent either on England or Scotland. It was, probably, for the purpose of impressing this caution on the mind of her son, that we find the royal invalid rousing herself to personal exertion once more, and commencing a journey to Plombieres, in a litter on the 12th of June, to obtain an interview with him, as he was prohibited from entering the French dominions. The Chevalier de St. George came to meet his mother at Plombieres, and after she had reposed herself there for a few days, induced her to accompany him on his return to the court of Bar, where she was most affectionately received by the friendly Duke and Duchess of Lorraine. The Earl of Stair was immediately, as in duty bound, on the alert to trace the proceedings of the exiled queen and her son. 
On the 24th of July, he writes to his own cabinet. I sent Barton to Lorraine to be informed of the pretender's motions. I met the Abbe Dubois in a wood and gave him an account of the intelligence I had concerning the pretender. I desired he would be particularly careful in informing himself concerning the pretender's designs and how far the court meddled with them. I set a man to observe Lord Bolingbroke. Our ambassador also held secret intelligence with Mr. Hook, a Protestant divine, in the establishment of the Chevalier, formerly chaplain to Monmouth, a fabricator of libels against James II, whom that infatuated prince, in an evil hour for himself, pardoned and took into his own service and confidence, fancying that by favors he could convert a factious divine into a friend. Barton returned on the 29th of July from Barr, and on the same day, Lord Stair reports that, The pretender is still there with the queen, his mother. Everything is quiet and few people there. They talk of his, that is the pretender, going to Britain. When his mother comes back, he will probably set out. The following passage, in a letter from the Duke of Berwick to Torcy, the French minister, dated August 24th, 1715, affords an amusing comment on the conduct and character of his renowned uncle. I have received a letter from the Duke of Marlborough, in which he expresses to me that he hopes much to enjoy the protection of Monsieur Le Chevalier, that is, St. George, accompanying these professions with a second present of two thousand pounds sterling. This gives me much hope, considering the character of my uncle, who is not accustomed to scatter his money thus, unless he foresees that it will prove of some utility. End of section 12.